Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Friday, heading into a long weekend. Many of you may have started your long weekend already, but for those that don't, hey, appreciate you. Uh, Karen Brown, uh, the Elementary Federation Teachers of Ontario, on with us to talk about the fall that's upcoming, the negotiations going on with the Ministry of Education, and comments the Minister of Education made on our show about her union not stepping up to the table for in-person contract meetings. What's accurate about that and what may not be, according to her. That's coming up. Mike Layton, city councillor, is saying goodbye to the city of Toronto, at least for being a city councillor. His reflections on some of those 12 years, what got accomplished, what he wished had, and where he goes now. And our 4 for 4 quiz focuses around Caribbean countries, on this, of course, a big weekend with the Toronto Caribbean Carnival happening in our great city. Toronto Today begins now. Our next guest uh, is going to be saying goodbye to being a Toronto City Councillor in the months to come. He will not seek re-election. He was first elected back in 2010, so he certainly put his time in a dozen years on City Council. And uh, like I said about Andrea Horvath earlier this week, think politics better when people like our next guest are in it. So he will be missed. Mike Layton joins us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much for making the time. Nice to be here, Greg. Yeah, 2010. When you when you reflect on election night that night, and that was the uh, that was the election of Rob Ford. He bested George Smitherman. That was there was a new class of counselor that you were part of, and and many of you carried on and and are still there now. Well, yeah, you know, it's uh, I, I've been looking back a lot at what we've accomplished in the last 12 years, what I've accomplished, and and the the, the people I've met along the way, people I've worked with, uh, and I. I, I think I can be proud of what I've done. Uh, at the same time, I can look forward to say, you know what, what's the new challenge? What's the next adventure? Uh, and then start to look to how to make an impact in a different way. We can move forward uh, chronologically, but I bring up Rob Ford getting uh, elected in 2010, and it was it was a crazy era. There's no doubt about it at, at City Hall. Books have been written. Movies have been made. How do you reflect on those four years and how it, it got back on track? It's not like nothing was accomplished those four years, but you just didn't know what was coming next those four years. Well, I think it, it, it was very destabilizing for the city. I think it, it actually impacted people's trust in their, in their local government, um, maybe even other levels of government, because it, it, it sort of just demonstrated the destructive powers and reputation that someone that, that a city can get from having a personality like uh, uh, like Rob uh, in the media globally, uh, and 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 for the reasons that he was, uh, but then there there were also a lot of uh, a, a lot of internal fights. Uh, one of them I'm quite proud of coming out on top of, which was reestablishing the Aboriginal Affairs Committee, because mm-hmm. that led to all the reconciliation work we've done for the past decade. Um, and and I think people forget there were all those little fights along the way that in fact uh, the city came together around uh, saving programs and services, around advancing things like climate action. Um, now, we've done far better since uh, the, cha- the change in management at the city, uh, but it was a, it, it was a very it, it turmulous time for, for our city and not for n- not seeing the positive types of change that we want to see when uh, uh, from our government. Mike Layton's joining us on Toronto Today, uh, 12 years in office as city councillor. If, if I'd said to you in 2010, you'll stay 12 years, would you have said, oh, I might even stay longer than that? Or I, I can't I can't picture doing three terms. How did you view it back then? You know, I was I had, I, I was pretty green into politics at that point, despite coming from the family that I did. It was my first real political mm. uh, political job. And uh, I, I would have probably said uh, that that seemed like a long time um, because at, at, at 30 uh, with no kids, 
anything over a decade does seem like quite a while. Uh, but um, as, as I think, I, as I grew into the position and uh, came to understand the necessary, uh, the chemistry of, of change and, uh, and, and moving policy through, uh, I got to really appreciate it. And the local level of government is such a fantastic uh, uh, level to, to participate in because it's not about us and them. It's not about being in, in government or opposition. You're simultaneously in both always. Um, so sometimes you're, uh, you're, you're with the, the coalition that's passing a policy and sometimes you're trying to drive it forward in a different direction. And to do that, you need to have incredibly strong relationships both inside City Hall and outside City Hall. So I've made a ton of friends along the way that we've worked together on issues. And those are the, those are the memories those, that I'll cherish. Uh, those are also uh, the relationships that I'd like to continue to have because I, I, I'm not done yet, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I want to still, uh, still be out there having an impact. I came from the environmental movement. Climate change is, is, is weighs heavy on my brain. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that I'm doing all I can to help us meet our climate targets as a city, as a province, as a country. And I just think it, it. I can probably best use those energies outside of government right now. Mike Layton, our guest on Toronto Today with Greg Brady. I'm glad you mentioned that um, because city councillors and uh, municipal politics in Canada, unlike the United States, doesn't have parties attached to them. You don't have parties. You don't have colors. And I, I do wonder if, if you can get more independence, more autonomy and more things done for your community because of that. The things that drive me crazy about Canada is just voting along party lines and, and any sort of challenge is deemed as some sort of betrayal, whereas at least in the United States, not a perfect system, but Democrats can vote against a Democratic president. Republicans can vote against a Republican president on on major issues, going to war, impeachment, whatever. And I, I don't think we do that enough in Canada at the federal and provincial levels. And you can do that in, in at the municipal level. I think we, we see it from individuals at every level of government that mm-hmm that do their best to sort of cross those party lines and to be collaborative in their approach. You, you do see it uh, on, uh, on occasion. I think mean, we saw it very recently with the Liberals and NDP sort of entering into an agreement for, to see some change and not to destabilize the country and topple the government in the middle of the term. Um, but on the municipal level, it's, it really is encouraged, partly because a lot of the issues we deal with cross geographic boundaries. So we have to figure out a way uh, to make it work, because when you're driving down Young Street, when you're driving down Bloor Street, you don't care when that when that one uh, politician's uh, uh, area ends and the, the next begins. What you want to see is people moving safely down the uh, down the road, down the sidewalk, uh, down the sidewalk. And the same goes across a number of different issues that we deal with on the municipal level, which is why those relationships, which is why finding finding. Uh, solutions that work for everyone. And sometimes that means giving up a little bit. Sometimes it means incremental change. Uh, but what it does is it builds it builds local support and political support in a way that, that we don't see at other levels, which is why you see um, the other levels of government, um, that, that needle swings so strongly from one end to the other. A new government gets in and all the plans change. That doesn't happen as much on the on the municipal level. How did the pandemic, Mike, change you as as a politician? It, I think it changed all of us. I think it changes as as people, as men, as fathers, as husbands. I think it, it, we've all changed in the last two and a half years. How did it, it change your politics if it did? You know, I think it just it reinforced the notion that we've got to figure out a way to make our city uh, a, a more just place. Uh, they, what, what I think the pandemic did for local governments was open our eyes to 
at just the, the disparities and the, the need out there in our communities. And I think there's more than ever, there's support for things like affordable housing, uh, appropriate shelter space, supportive housing in communities. Um, I certainly saw that change amongst my community, who just, just a couple of years ago may have had had some reservations about certain development uh, projects or, or, or tenants moving into spaces. And now they're far more supportive, I think, because our eyes were opened up that like it, there's, there's a lot of people out there that are living pretty precariously and dangerously, and we want to help them. The other side is got to be home for bedtime for my kids. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we, I don't think people realize most of your municipal politicians have a public meetings like four or five nights a week out at events on weekends um, that that's like, I know what I was signing up for. So like, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, this isn't a pity party, but at the same time, I had two kids in the last 12 years of council and I was missing about half the bedtimes. And, and it's not only bedtimes, you got to travel to and from meetings. So all of a sudden you're missing dinner bedtime when the kids are in, my kids are just recently in school and boy, oh boy, like that's most of the day, it's most of the week. And so getting to be there because you're on your zoom screen, still have the public meeting, but then you're able just to walk to the next room and, 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 and lay down with, in this case, my little girls and read them a story. And that meant a lot to me. And I think that's, that's one of the driving forces in, uh, in, in my decision here is just a, just a bit of a, of, of a, of a readjustment to, uh, to the work-life balance to ensure that uh, I'm, I'm getting those bedtimes while my kids want to see me. That's it. You, yeah. You, you, Mike, I'm envious. You got that. It probably an eight or nine year window where you're, you're super dad, you're Superman. And then when you're, uh, when they're teenagers, you're a taxi shuttle service, you're a bank and, and, uh, the kids will hide under the car seat when their friends wave at the car. So enjoy this time while you can. That's what I'd say. Cool. Well, I've been through this right with <laughs> with my parents in politics. I know I know what that side is, what, what that side of it is as well. And I'm, I, mm. I'd like to be there for them as much as I can through these early years. Well, congratulations on uh, a stellar twelve years for making a difference. Uh, I hope we get to see you uh, again. And I know whatever you'll do, it'll matter to the public and and it'll be meaningful to the public as well. Thank you so much for making time for us, and and please come back again. Thanks, Greg. Mike Layton joining us on Toronto Today. We had. Stephen Lecce on the show, education minister, earlier in the week. This is what he got to near the end of this interview, and this is the comment that has a lot of people uh, upset, disappointed, and accusing the education minister of starting something where something doesn't need to be started. But here's what he said. Some of the teacher unions, ETFO, uh, for example, indicated that they will not be available until September. Uh, and others like QP, who are working with us and meeting with us through the summer. Okay. And it's just a really it's a factual reminder that everyone should be made available to work hard to get a deal because we're available throughout this period. We always have been, we always will be, because for us, stability is the number one uh, priority of the government. And I think, frankly, you talk to the members, talk to the educators, they want it too. They want it too. They just want to go back to work. They don't want to deal with this. That last sentence is true. The first sentence uh, obviously drew a lot of attention. And uh, we'll go right to the source because we can and we should. President of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario is Karen Brown. Karen, thank you very much for uh, getting up early. And I hope your summer is going great and for making the time for our audience. Uh, thank you, uh, Greg. It, it is. And it's important to, to be here and it's important to continue to, to set the record straight. Well, were you a little bit like... Um, Without the profanity, Will Smith to Chris Rock, keep keep my uh, teachers union's name out of your uh, something something mouth. Is that is that at all accurate that you haven't had meetings and and Etfo has said we can't meet until late August, early September? What's what's true? What's not about that statement? Yeah, it's it's as I said, 
you know, it's, it's really confusing because we were the ones who actually had to push the government to actually get an initial meeting date. We were the last federation consulted with any date uh, to actually begin the bro- bargaining process. So let's start with that. So they, they did not approach us. They avoided us. All the other affiliates actually had a bargaining date. Uh, we then engaged uh, in, in, a, in a bargaining session uh, with, uh, with the government. And we, re- we, re- we requested some dates in the end of August and September. And they were supposed to get back to us. Uh, they hadn't. Next thing we know is that the minister uh, is putting out statements that we're, we're not willing to meet. We have always been willing to meet. Uh, we'll continue to be willing to meet. Uh, since this little fiasco, we have received um, a date uh, uh, for August. So that is good uh, in, re- in relation to that. Really, what the, what the minister is trying to do is to create chaos. He's fear-mongering. Uh, we want stability in the system. Our members want stability. Uh, students want to go back. Uh, we're looking forward to that. We're, this mm-hmm. is probably going to be the best school year in a long time. Our educators are, are ready to receive kids. They've, many are already starting to plan. Others are still resting and recovering. We are still in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, and our members will use their professional judgment and do the best that they can, as they have always done over the years. The majority of our members have been uh, educators and teachers far longer than he has been Minister of Education. Uh, many, like myself, have had almost 30 years of commitment uh, to the system working with kids. Uh, so we'll be constant professionals, and it's, it's going to be another good school year. The minister needs to focus on negotiations and making sure that students have what they need to succeed, the smaller class sizes that we're, we're talking about, the special yeah. education supports and investments. That's what we, we need to be focusing on. What's the date that you have for your first meeting in August? Uh, we haven't told our members yet, but we do have a date, so I don't want to commit. But he has. We, they did find uh, a date in, in their calendar for us. And, and that's the thing. If the, if the minister is going to be trying to use the, the, the media uh, to, to create and to isolate ECFO. That's not it. Parents have had enough of that. When he was re-elected, uh, we said that we were hoping that he'd be willing to restore and create a positive working relationship with education partners. This is not how you start that. Uh, we're willing. We're going to be there. Let's do what we can to properly service uh, the students of Ontario. Parents deserve better. They expect better, especially from the Minister of Education. Karen. We've been quiet because we've been focusing on the important things, um, getting ready to, to go back to, to meet the mm-hmm. needs of students. You haven't heard much from me because said, uh, we're, you know, when we get to the table, we'll do that. But other than that, our members know we're, we're ready, we're set. Mm-hmm. And we'll be in school in, in, in September. Karen Brown's joining us. She's the president of the uh, Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario on Toronto today. I, I think two things about what you said. One, y- you're right um, in that uh, I, I don't doubt the commitment of teachers. I don't doubt what they've been through the last two years. I think teachers, I think students, I think parents have all um, you know had more on their shoulders than they could have ever anticipated before February 2020. Of course, that's true. The one thing I do think they'd love, and I'm sure you hear it too, is how how does it get down to sort of meat and potato stuff? You're right without addressing uh, without addressing it through the media. I would say at times during the pandemic when the mask mandate was lifted or when we were out of school in January, 
I think the the finger was pointed more at maybe not yourself, but other union leaders who were we're not sure it's safe. We're not sure we're comfortable. We're not sure that everything's ready. And those were those were open media discussions as opposed to closed door discussions as well. Everybody just wants stuff to get done and, and to progress forward. Uh, that's correct. But I think the messaging uh, that we have we have been, um, you know, releasing and, and speaking about is that we, we hope that as we enter for September that our students are going to have the support, uh, the masking, the, the, the social distancing, the proper things that they need. We're still in a pandemic to continue to do that. Uh, the government says they're committed. They need to be focusing their time and their energy around that. We haven't signaled anything different. And like the other federations, the other unions, we will stand up for our members. We will advocate if conditions are not safe. What we saw um, was staffing shortages because our members were getting sick. Uh, anyone who could actually breathe was in a classroom uh, helping because the, the, they didn't have enough uh, long-term occasional teachers, be, because they didn't have any paid sick days. Uh, there were a lot of things that made the system challenging and made it challenging for students. And those things need to be in place. We're still in a pandemic. So we still need, we're seeing the hospital crisis. We don't want to see that in education. We want to make sure that our, our, our students are healthy and our teachers and educators are healthy so that there isn't any interruptions during the school year. So hopefully those things are in place. And if they're not, we will hold the government accountable. We, we are going to challenge them on that. And, you know, we've been told, but our members will say, I'll get the calls, the emails, and they'll say, Karen, uh, this is happening. Uh, the HEPA filter is broken down. We don't have, the kids are piled in. Uh, mm-hmm. We're getting a lot of children who are sick. A lot of staff is sick. They're collapsing classrooms. We're concerned about our health and safety. I need to protect my family. I have a vulnerable uh, parent, a child, or partner. Yeah. Uh, so those are, those are things that haven't gone away. And our members are still need those health and safety precautions. And so the minister needs to focus on those things. Um, and we will continue to ensure and, and move along. There is, yes, there's a, a role to comment on, on negotiations, but comment in a, in a positive way. Comment that, you know, many groups are available. Expo also is very unique from the other affiliates. We have our annual meeting in August. We'll so be hearing a lot more starting from, you know, August uh, 14th and beyond. Uh, we have delegates coming in from across the province uh, who are going to be giving us direction around policies and procedures and around, you know, talking more about bargaining, holding this government accountable. So where, they know it's a little bit different. Where do you stand on, on vaccination? I just think we have a different universe, and we have a different universe post-Omicron, where so many people have had COVID. Some people have had Omicron twice, and uh, and some kids obviously had to get vaccinated last year to play sports, to go to movies, to go to restaurants, but some of those vaccines have waned. But I'm really hesitant, really hesitant on any idea of a mandate any further um, for anybody, especially teenagers and especially children. Where do you stand on that? Um, our members haven't given us uh, any new direction on that. Our last annual meeting, we were given direction. Uh, we were at a different stage in the pandemic. And we felt as members who were able to be vaccinated should be fully vaccinated and students. And that has been the direction that our members have uh, given the Federation, has given me as a mandate. Uh, that hasn't changed. We're going into an annual meeting. They might give us a new direction. Uh, people are going to make those personal choices. We've supported our members who are vaccinated and the members who aren't. Everyone has a right uh, to make those decisions. But on a, from a system level, we have, you know, the direction has been if you can. Uh, they're safe, 
go ahead and do that. We know things have changed, and we will continue to uh, mm. evaluate that. And I've got only a minute here, but extracurriculars, my experience and, and with both my parents teaching was there were times in both their lives they could be a lot more involved in some extracurriculars than others. When you've got young families or aging parents, or it's just a time in the household when you got to pull back a little bit. So I, I don't hesitate to say I, I think teachers that are engaged in sports and field trips and after school stuff and running the school play, I think they'll be fully engaged. That's my sense of teachers anyway. So I would agree with you in that Minister Lecce said that last week, we've got to have these things. I think I think teachers are ready to do those things in the first place. Uh, absolutely. I think teachers will use their, their own professional judgment uh, around that, those situations. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say we're not going to have uh, safe learning conditions and safe working conditions, yet we expect you to do all these things. Uh, teachers are, are exhausted. They're resting. You can't have them going back into a pandemic, feeling unsafe, continuing to, for you to kind of uh, continue to add ministry initiatives, whether it's new math curriculum, science curriculum, all these things. And, oh, by the way, do extracurricular. And we're going to have, you know, uh, attendance management because if you're sick, because, because you're exhausted, hold on here. Like, let's cut back. We're in, it. We're in a pandemic. Let's take some things off the table so our members have the energy to give. When I started teaching, that was easy to do because there were the supports in the system that allowed you to engage in curricular act, extracurricular activities and allowed you to, yeah. to to give the best to students. It's not the same. So you need to rebalance the system. Mm. There's so many cuts and taking out that our members, you know, those who can will, and there are different career, different periods yeah. of time in their career. A beginning teacher, yes. A mid-career yeah. teacher might not. It depends on where they are. And they'll do that. They have done that. And that's their, their choice. It's called extracurricular. It's voluntary for a reason. Our members love students and they'll do what's best. I hear that loud and clear. Thank you very much for the time and for, uh, and for I think, the clarifications of relief to parents. But I think most of it was, was sort of, you know, th- they knew it anyway. But they need to hear it from you uh, as, as leader of, of an important union for our kids. Thank you for doing that. And I hope we can have another conversation before the school year starts, Karen. Have a great long weekend. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. And yes, parents, you know, we're, we're looking forward to a really great school year. Thanks. Awesome. Let's do our uh, four for four quiz. It's Canadian Caribbean weekend. Um, you know, we have this song that we play during the quiz. It sounds like a 70s game show. I like it for that reason. Makes us all feel like we're kids again because we're having some. But let's this is about the Caribbean nations. Let's jazz it up a little bit. Let's spice it up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Um, I just saw it. Dave, have you seen the video of John Tory dancing yesterday? No. <laughs> it's going to make the rounds as a meme. He is he is cutting some rug That's on stage. Fantastic. <laughs> getting ready for the Caribbean carnival. This is a Billy Ocean's Caribbean queen. The first line is, she ducked by me and painted on jeans. And, Gore, and Dave, I, I know you've noticed Gord's wearing his painted on jeans this morning. It's a little awkward. How does he get into those things? I don't know. Well, that's, that's every pair of pants. Uh, sure. <laughs> it isn't. Here we go with our quiz. All right, so this is about the Caribbean countries. Um, I've got three cities. Three cities. Can you name the... Ca- they're all capital cities. I just need you to name two of the countries which their capital's of. Here's the three cities. Gord, we'll start with you. Nassau, Port-au-Prince, Bridgetown. Can you name two of those three cities, two of those three countries those are capitals of? You don't need to nail them exactly. I just need two countries. Nassau, Port-au-Prince, Bridgetown. Uh, Nassau is Bahamas, and Port-au-Prince is in Haiti. 
Okay, Dave, you have little to do here. Uh, no, no, I was going to say the same thing. Actually, those are the two that I got. Not Bridgestone. I know you're more into tires. It's Bridgetown, not Bridgestone. I don't know. Um, I don't know where Bridgetown is, actually. Barbados. Oh, okay. Barbados' capital. So that was a tricky one, but you both got it. Yeah, Nassau in the Bahamas, uh, Port-au-Prince in Haiti. Now, I want you to rank these capital cities in terms of population size. These are uh, three of the five biggest Caribbean cities for capitals. Uh, Kingston in Jamaica, Santo Domingo in Dominican Republic, and Havana Havana in Cuba. (laughs) (laughs) I knew I'd mess that up once. Santo Domingo, Havana, Kingston. Dave. We're looking for? Largest to smallest in terms of population size. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say Havana. And then um, Santo Domingo, and then the uh, capital of Jamaica. What is it? Um, Kingston. Kingston, yeah. Not Kingston, Ontario. No, no. Uh, Gord? I'm going to go Havana, then Kingston, then Santo Domingo. Okay. It is actually Santo Domingo is the largest city in the Caribbean. And uh, third is Havana. Santo Domingo has 3.7 million people. Port-au-Prince is second. I wouldn't have said that at 2.6. San Juan, Puerto Rico has 2.1 million. Then it's Havana. Then it's Kingston with just 1.2 million people. So there you have it. Third question in our uh, Caribbean countries quiz. It's going great so far. Um, (laughs) Most visited Caribbean nation by tourists, not just Canadian tourists, but just worldwide. So think about that because Cuba is that X factor in the mix. Is it Dominican Republic, Cuba or Jamaica? Gord. Jamaica. Okay. Dave. I'll I'll go with Dominican. Dave, you're right. It is the Dominican Republic. I feel like that's a more recent trend. Yeah, it seems to be, actually. I think it is in the last 20 years. I don't know what it is. Maybe they've built more resorts there, maybe more uh, corporate resorts. I'm not sure. Now, finally, uh, Jamaica's very famous for uh, its music, its reggae and whatnot. But I'm going to give you one celebrity name that is not Jamaican. So I've got three Jamaicans and one non-Jamaican. It's not me. I I wasn't born there. I would have loved to have been born there. I've got three Jamaican names and one non-Jamaican. So uh, pick the non-Jamaican. I'm worried this sounds like a Saturday Night Live sketch, (laughs) but we're doing this all above board, and this is very factual. So I'll give you four names, celebrities. Everybody knows who these celebrities are. Harry Belafonte, Dave. Grace Jones, the actress. Andy Garcia and Shaggy. Can you tell me who the non-Jamaican is? I, I want to say Andy Garcia just because it seems so obvious. I will go with Andy Garcia. Andy Garcia. Uh, Gord. <laughs> Shaggy. I'll do it. Shaggy. Andy Garcia. Grace Jones or Harry Belafonte? You know, uh, I want to say Harry Belafonte. <laughs> I was in his house. Come what? on. Were you really? I was. How? It was in a. I was on a a, a tour of. <laughs> I was on a tour of one of the countries, and it was in there. And I don't think it was in Jamaica. Okay. Well, you must have been uh, having a couple of rum and cokes because Harry Belafonte was born in Jamaica, and Dave has it right. It's Andy Garcia who was born in Havana, oh, Cuba. Even that's surprising. So you got I didn't it. Know that? Yeah. 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 Huh. And because uh, remember, it, you first see him in The Untouchables, and he plays like an Italian. Yeah, it's true. So he was able to sort of. <laughs> Something himself? the three of us couldn't necessarily yeah. do is play a lot of different uh, nationalities. And Grace Jones is from Jamaica. I wouldn't have said that. Hmm. 
I wouldn't have known that, but she's got that thick accent, and she moved to Syracuse, New York. So that's not that's nowhere near yeah. anywhere oh, tropical wow, if you've been oh, to Syracuse. Why? That's a big change. Yeah, why would you do that? <laughs> I think her family. I think she had no... Oh, okay. She was coerced, oh, Okay, as it were, the popular word we use these days. Thank you for playing, guys. Uh, really exciting, really exciting uh, Caribbean quiz. We're going to have a great weekend this weekend with uh, the Toronto Caribbean Carnival back. It's the biggest of its kind on the planet, and it's back in full force. And we can feel it. We can see it. When we drive into the city and downtown, we feel it. Laverne Garcia is executive chair of the Carnival's Festival Management Committee, and she takes some time to join us right now. Laverne, you're going to hey, you're gonna have some late nights the next few nights, so thanks for getting <laughs> up early before 8 o'clock. We oh, appreciate it. No I know a lot of people that will go to the, the festival tonight and Saturday, they'll be sleeping until 11. So thanks for doing this early for me. Yeah, no, happy to be here. <laughs> What's what's the biggest thing you're excited about after, as we said, um, you've seen it with other events here, Pride Parade, some of the sports events, just being able to be back after three years. What are you most excited about for the weekend? Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, actually, is just the fact that we're able to come together again, you know, after missing two festivals. I think everyone just is so happy to be able to celebrate in person and come together as a community and as a city and um, and just you know, embrace the carnival. <laughs> were you worried? Even the start of the year, right? We're just talking about um, some of the, you know, impacts of, of the pandemic in January. We're closing schools again. We're worried. We all still got masks on. And you must be thinking the clock's kind of ticking here. We're having this in five months and we want to have it come hell or high water. Were you worried in the winter that this couldn't come off? Yeah, well, I mean, I wasn't worried. I was optimistic, but definitely, you know, the mass men had to order their, I got an invoice from one of them in December saying, okay, we're ordering stuff. We're going ahead, you know, mm. and, and I don't think we even had the official go ahead yet, but they, they need to plan in advance. So, so definitely it was a challenge and, uh, and it was a risk, but um, you know, everyone's just been so, um, you know, ready to get back to normal and back to celebrating, you know, life and, and our culture. So I think they just, they took the plunge and, and I'm really grateful. I read the story, um, uh, this is 55 years along, and I read the story this week of the original band leaders from 67 getting back together and remembering starting um, yes, the uh, the parade. The pres- it, like, I love things that have such a sense of history. And at that time, I mean, I wasn't alive then, but in 1967, <laughs> that must have been, no nobody foresees something lasting and growing and becoming the biggest on the planet in 55 years. And we have that here in Toronto. It's so We're so prideful about this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's a testament to like all the volunteers, all of the, the um, you know, mass men, steel panists, Calypsonians, everyone just, you know, pouring their heart and soul into, into producing the carnival and, and then the city embracing it, the country embracing it. So, um, you know, I think it's just because it represents so much um, about freedom, about, you know, diversity, inclusion, um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing that it's always, you know, celebrated on Emancipation Day. Well, what is now Emancipation Day officially mm-hmm. recognized by the government. So um, it, it means a lot to so many people. So we're really grateful for the longevity. Laverne Garcia is uh, with us on Toronto Today, Executive Chair of Toronto Carnival's Festival Management Committee. I know you've also talked about um, sort of a, a, you know, a hard brick and mortar museum for this festival. What, what could get that going? What could get that sort of machinery rolling to make that happen someday? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a dream because, you know, a lot of the work that goes into these costumes and they, especially the King and Queen was last night. And these are like, you know, gigantic costumes that take months of work. 
and um, and it would be amazing to be able to you know archive that and 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 um, you know be able to share that with you know future generations and and with people who weren't able to make it out. So you know it takes funding. I mean, basically it's a it's an issue of being able to you know house these um, costumes and really tell the story of of carnival in Canada because it really started as a gift from the Caribbean community to Canada. And I think that it's sort of the gift that keeps on giving from, you know, the economic impact of, you know, um, over $400 million a year, um, all that. It, it's just, it's something that no one ever thought that it would grow to that level, but it has. And, and it's something that we really do cherish as, as a city and, um, you know, as a country. So it would be great to be able to document that and share that with people going forward. One of the things as well, and I've seen the TV coverage and it's great that, that I, yeah, I, I'm glad I spotted it because it gives me context to bring it up to you is that people coming in from other cities and that again, not to bring out more stressful things. That's the one thing I was worried about uh, is people have their passports, uh, you know, uh, yeah. and, and people being able to travel and use the arrive can app. This doesn't seem to have slowed the carnival up this year. There are people from, all over the place, all over the planet. There's people that like circle this on the calendar and come from Europe or they come from Africa or they come from the Caribbean or they come from the States. And it's awesome to see. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's so great. I mean, that's really what we're about as, you know, as even a city as a country, you know, we're about, um, you know, bringing people together and uh, the multiculturalism. So um, we just really value the fact that, that people have, you know, seen, I mean, Toronto's a beautiful city and everyone loves to come here and um and it's a safe city and so we're just really excited that that people have um, been able to sort of go over the hurdles and uh, and get be yeah. able to come and join us so work it's great it's fantastic hey laverne thanks so much for sharing some time with us i know we have a lot of listeners i'm seeing them text in right now saying i'm going here on this on uh, saturday i'll be here on set on sunday so it's awesome to see already i hope it's a brilliant weekend we don't see any rain in the forecast so i think this is going to go brilliantly thanks for the time today Thank you so much. You bet. I hope it's a fantastic weekend. Laverne Garcia joining us um, from uh, the Festival Management Committee. So, yeah, it is one of those things. Not sure it's had the international travel. And I'm not sure anything has that we had in previous years. How could that be the case? And we've talked all week on uh, a couple different shows on on the tourism industry, taking time to return to, as that phrase goes, pre-pandemic levels. But it's getting there. This is an important step. The CNE is an important step. Uh, Pride Parade, Honda Indy, all these are important things. Can the city pull it off? Does it look like fun? Would I want to go next year? And how TV news stories frame it and how live coverage frames it, all that matters. It matters a lot. This came out last night and a uh, doctor alerted me to this. I'd planned to spend a few minutes talking about um, what many doctors that we put on our show Toronto Today deemed would be uh, the vaccine uptake for the six-month to five-year-old's yesterday um and i i think i can get to that this segment but this was from university of toronto yesterday and the person i heard from was well i wouldn't say he was inconsolable but he was remarkably disappointed by this i'll read this to you from the university of toronto and what they plan here for um being up to date on vaccinations Recently, U of T reinstated the vaccination requirement for students and employees living in university residences. Students living in residences this fall will be required to have a primary series of a COVID-19 vaccine and at least one booster dose before moving in. That's in in, uh, bold ink, by the way, on their website. 
More information on this measure is available in the vaccine's FAQs on our You Together website. Now, the university application process hasn't changed that much since I went to university. And that's, well, a generation ago. It is uh, in the early 90s. But what you would do is if you were a first year student, you would send applications away. We would send them through the mail. It's probably all done online now. And you would get an acceptance back probably around March or April. You'd have a sense probably with four or five months of advance notice where you were going. Me, for example, I applied to Mac, Laurier, and Western. And I got accepted to all three. Yay. But I decided to go to the one, which was Western. I had a part-time job there. Great job. I knew people. Uh, and I never really lived on my own in London. And I wanted to do that. I, I, I didn't live in, in the city proper. So residence wasn't something that I did. This wouldn't affect me if I'm living off campus. But you'll have to explain to me, like I'm a five-year-old again, why this is happening for students living in residences, but not university professors, not students attending classes, not students in common areas, not students working out in weight rooms, not student athletes. What makes students living in residences so special that they must have that booster before moving in? And as well, if we're, um, st- by the way, there's two things happening. If we're still using the phrase, follow the science, um, I think we're a little bit not following the science anymore. And I think when we look back at the COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, we had Karen Brown on, who is, you know, a union leader for the uh, Elementary Federation of, of Teachers of Ontario. And she said, she kept, she used the phrase a couple times, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Well, I don't think we are. You don't have to agree that we're out of a pandemic and we're now where we're going to be next year at this time and the year after that at this time. That's more where I lean than the middle of a pandemic. But and I understood a year ago why hundreds of U.S. colleges and our own universities required faculty, staff and students to be vaccinated using covid vaccines. I understood all of that. But here's what's been abandoned risk. Well, choice has. Freedom has, independent has, and I know freedom is co-opted by people leaning more right than left, people more libertarian than than compliant, and there's but there's no rigorous evidence. Okay, there's no rigorous evidence and no risk benefit test or acknowledgement of acquired slash natural immunity in U of T's policy. U of T's policy, if I had to lay it on the line and you said, is this more pro-science? Or is this more anti-science? It's more anti-science. It is. University of Toronto is looking to enact an anti-scientific policy for their residences. And again, it makes no sense to link it to kids staying in residence and who are almost exclusively kids that weren't there last year. You could potentially have kids who applied to the school with no vaccine requirement. Now you're telling them they have to be boosted. You can't get boosted in time to go to the school you want to go to and live in residence. This is a month from now. They released this yesterday. It's new news as of yesterday. This hasn't been on their website quietly since May 10th or April 15th. It's brand new stuff. And to absolutely disregard the fact that there are going to be in countless cases, countless cases, kids who have had two vaccines who've recovered from COVID. And it doesn't matter if they've had COVID in in the Alpha uh, era or the Delta era or the Omicron era. You've had it. And there will be a point in time in which, yes, the uh, effectiveness of of the immunity will wane. 
same as the vaccines, okay? People are trying to have their cake and eat it too, and they've been trying to do that for a good 14, 15 months when it comes to the shots. Well, I mean, you know, the immunity does wane at a certain point, right? And so does your vaccine, of which I have three of them. And again, there's been one size fits all healthcare that has made no sense really since vaccination started. My parents are in their 70s, they have four. I'm a, a, a healthy adult male with no comorbidities that I can think of, and I have three. And my teenage sons have two. That's the delineation that we were going with. Okay. And one, at least one of those sons that says COVID and I had COVID and I don't know how the other one didn't. Every kid I knew had COVID between what are we talking? January and May. Everyone did. So you're making no acknowledgement whatsoever in those resident settings of someone who's had two shots, who's recently had COVID. There's no acknowledgement of that whatsoever. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. Back with a live show on Tuesday. We'll take Monday off uh, and send you some of our best from this week and perhaps even the week prior. But it's uh, a three-day weekend for the vast majority of us, and we'll take it. Tuesday, back with a live show, 5.30. You can listen on the Radio Player Canada app and, of course, at 640toronto.com and, of course, at 6.40 on your AM dial. Have a great three days, and we'll see you next week.